all miracles and must make the most of our limited time here. Each of us have these unique gifts to contribute to the world and it's our job to develop these gifts and give them away. That's why I created the Preschool SLP podcast. The Preschool SLP is about working smarter to create real change in ourselves and in others. Being an SLP is a mission. Let's discuss topics that matter. What are the game-changing strategies? How can we treat the whole child? How can we create the shiniest versions of ourselves and of our clients? We're here at the drawing board for a reason. You bring your own unique gifts. Together, let's create better. I'm so excited that we're here today because we are going to ASHA this week. I have two posters with my graduate students, and they're both awesome. So make sure to check them out in the poster gallery. If you look up my name, Kelly Vest, in the poster gallery, you should find them. Both of the posters have really nice clinical implications that you can put into Monday morning practice. We are talking about speech perception today. If you work with children with speech sound disorders, this is an episode you're not going to want to miss. We are first going to talk about my simple five-step process to evaluating speech perception. In the second part, we're going to look at all of the different areas that are factors that indicate this child is at greater risk for literacy problems at school age. So all of these factors are something we're going to want to pay close attention to. Speech perception is just one of those factors. There's 12 others that we're going to cover that we want to document in that we want to definitely take an early literacy intervention approach to if we see multiple factors. So first, let's talk about the five-step process. What I like to do is simply give the child a single word speech sound disorder test. And when I do, I like to put little miniature post-its on the items that the child scores incorrectly on. Then when I'm finished with the single word speech sound disorder test and I have post-its on all the pictures of the sounds that the child said incorrectly, I'm able to close the book and tell the child we're gonna play a new game. And this time, I'm going to see the pictures and the child's going to be the teacher and the child's going to say thumbs up if I say the word correctly and thumbs down if I say the word not correctly, if I didn't say it right, if I said it wrong. So I'm going to first go through an example and I'm going to do an item that was really easy for the child. So for instance, maybe the word bed was super easy for the child. And instead of saying the word bed, maybe I'll say something that's way different and even atypical. So maybe I would say the word zed. Then I'll say, does that sound right? Thumbs down if that doesn't sound right. and Thumbs up if it does sound right. So the child would do 
thumbs down. And we could coach them in this area if they say thumbs up. Z doesn't sound right. Okay, let me say it again. Bad. Does that sound right? Okay, thumbs up. That sounds right. So then I'm going to go and I'm going to do that same process with every single one of the items. So what I need from the child is I need the child to get both correct for me to give the child credit that the child's perceiving the sound accurately. So then I'm going to go to the next item. The child said date for gate. So what I'm going to say is I'm going to say date. Did I say that correctly? And if the child's like, yeah, you said that correctly, I'm automatically going to say that that child misperceived the sound, even though afterwards I'm going to say, now let me try it again. Gate. Did I say it correctly that time? The child has thumbs up for gate, then it's still going to be marked zero correct. So what I do is write on that testing form, I will write P zero, which means P, he does not get credit. He did not accurately perceive when I said the word incorrectly that it was incorrect. And what the research tends to indicate is that when you say the sound incorrectly, just like the child says it, the child is more likely to rate it incorrectly and say, yeah, that sounds great. That's how I say it too. So say the word like the child says it. Okay, we're going to keep it real to really assess whether the child is accurately perceiving the sound or not. So suppose that the child has 10 ears and we go through these 10 ears and only three of the times the child was accurately on both of the times when you said it inaccurately and when you said it accurately and you're going to randomly say it accurately first or inaccurately the second time each time. So the child's like every time she's going to say it wrong the first time. I get her game and the second time she says it right every time. So you're just going to randomly mix those up. Sometimes they say it right the first time. Sometimes they say it wrong the first time. So each word you're going to say it each way on each of the problems. And if they get it wrong one of those times, then it's going to be a P0. They did not perceive it correctly. They get it right both of the times. You're going to say P1. They did perceive it correctly. Then at the end, you're going to divide it by the total number. So they had 10, 10 incorrect. They perceived it correctly three times. So they have a 30% accurate perception. You can add that in one sentence to the report. Based on the examiner's production of the words, the child was able to identify sounds produced accurately and inaccurately 30% of the time. That gives you nice baseline data of how accurate the child is in perceiving their own misproduced sounds spoken by others. So at the end of the year, you can once again take data and you can once again assess what their accuracy is of the sounds that they misproduce. Has that improved? I believe that you can improve the perception two ways, through using multimodal exaggerated speech in a lot of imagery. That's going to improve the child's perception of what an accurate model sounds like and what an inaccurate model sounds like. The second part is this is only one area that we want to take note of 
of many factors that have to do with whether or not this child is going to have challenges with literacy at the elementary age. So what are some of those other factors? So there's three factors that we really want to consider at birth. The first is the genetic history of dyslexia. That's extremely important and places the child at greater risk for literacy impairment. The second that we want to look at is, was the child born very early at a low birth rate? We're talking more than a month in advance early. The third area that we're going to want to look at is we're going to want to look at, was the child exposed to pre or perinatal trauma? Was there alcohol exposure, drug exposure? Was there oxygen depletion at birth due to the cord being wrapped around the neck? These all place the child at greater risk for language impairments, which would place the child at greater risk for literacy impairment. Now let's look at the eight other factors that we really want to document and that place the child at greater risk for literacy impairment. The next one is orbit language impairment. Is there also a language impairment that places the child at much greater risk for literacy impairment? The factor after that we're going to want to look at is in the speech test itself, did the child have difficulty with multisyllabic words? That places the child at greater risk for language impairment. Multisyllabic words require verbal working memory because you're going to not only remember the syllables, you have to sequence them and then express them. And verbal working memory is known to be a deficit area for children with language impairment. The next area we want to look at on the test itself is, are there deletions of syllables or deletions of sounds? That indicates that the child has a weak underlying linguistic foundation and places the child at greater risk for language impairment. The next area we want to look at, number seven, is inaccurate vowel productions. So inaccurate vowel productions means like a lot of the vowels are being centralized. So instead of producing diphthongs, such as coat, they're saying cut, and it's more like a centralized stressed schwa. So when you're seeing vowel areas, these are more likely in children with language impairment. The next area that we're looking at is the atypical errors. Is the child substituting simpler sounds for harder ones? Those are breaking the universal norms across languages. And that tells us that there's likely a neurological difference for that. Why would the child be doing something much harder instead of something much easier? That indicates there's more likely going to be a language impairment issue and therefore a literacy difficulty down the road. The next area that we're looking at is poor phonological awareness skills. So does the child have difficulty with rhyming? Does the child have difficulty with sound to letter correspondence? Those are two really early skills that are going to stand out. The third area we're going to look at is poor letter knowledge. So does the child have difficulty with recognizing letters in their name, even though they've been exposed to it countless times? Look for the child who knows none of their letters, even though they've had a lot of meaningful exposure with print. The next one we're going to look at is for phonological processing. So if I like the C-top two, which begins at age four, and what they have is they have multiple tests on there that test verbal working memory. 
Verbal working memory is a hallmark deficit for children with language impairment. So that's something you're really going to want to pay attention to. Tests such as sentence repetition, nonsense word repetition, digit repetition. These are tasks that are very indicative of language impairment and therefore very indicative of risk for literacy impairment. And lastly, what about attention? We're finding a lot of children have attention and executive function issues. These are the children that are turning from activity to activity. These are the children that are unable to complete a multiple step direction, such as putting your coat on and your boots and your shoes on, and they end up halfway across the room. They're not independently able to follow a routine with a beginning and a middle and an end due to executive function issues. These underlying foundational skills that are required, such as attention, such as working memory, such as cognitive flexibility, are very much required in learning to read. So we're looking at these dozen skills in addition to the child's accuracy and speech perception as being one tiny puzzle piece of many. So not all puzzle pieces are the same size. The children we know that are most likely to have difficulty with literacy are those that have a genetic disposition, such as dyslexia in the family or children with language impairment. When we put all of these pieces together, we have a clearer picture of who is at risk for literacy impairment. So if you're looking for more information on literacy, In my Speech Sound Disorders chapter, you're going to find one chapter devoted to how you can work on literacy intervention within the context of speech sound disorders. There's also a stimulability assessment to look at the child's stimulability to produce sounds. I want you to take all of this information, roll up your sleeves, make the world a better place one child at a time. You're first.